The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Well, now we spoke briefly of Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages making a synthesis between the form, matter, theme of Aristotle for Greek philosophy and Christianity. Now we have in modern times Descartes, the first great modern philosopher, who starts very definitely from the human self as though it were intelligible to itself and doesn't have to relate itself from the beginning to God, the Creator, or to Christ, the Redeemer. He gets God in, but he gets him in afterwards. Just like in the case of Aristotle, you have being first, and then you introduce a distinction. Well, if you introduce the distinction between the Creator and the creature, any other time than at the beginning, then it isn't the creator anymore. In other words, then he has a secondary place, a derivative place. The Christian position says that God is alone first, sufficient to himself, the triune God, then creation. And that means that after that, therefore, every fact in the created universe, man himself, is dependent and absolutely dependent. And then God's plan controls whatsoever comes to pass. Now, that to say, at this stage here, Bishop Butler, who was a bishop in the Anglican Church, used this empirical philosophy of John Locke in Berkeley, not of Hume, of course, but of Locke in Berkeley, in order to synthesize it with Christianity or to use it as a foundation to prove to people that you could establish the existence of God not only, he was taking that for granted, but that you could prove the truth of Christianity according to principles that people who were not Christians had already adopted. In other words, he said to the deists, and this is his argument, his famous book is the analogy of natural and revealed religion, generally called the analogy. Now, he said to the deists with whom he was discussing things, he said, we have the course and the constitution of nature in common. We agree on that. We've interpreted it in the sense that we both believe in a God. Now, there are bad people. There are, mass, uh, there are materialists and mechanists and others. You don't believe with them, and we don't. So we agree, we good people agree that there is a God. We are, you call yourself deists, but, and we, I call myself a theist, just the same. We can agree on the course and the constitution of nature. Just look at it. Here's a little baby. And then, look, 72 years later, then he's a graybeard. And yet there's a continuity. It's the same person. There's a lot of difference between a baby picture. Did you ever see a baby picture of yourself, how cute you were? And now look at yourself. <laughs> now, uh, and yet there's continuity, don't you see? Now, so he says, uh, at this point when death comes, the question is, will there be life after death? Will there be an immortality? Well, he says it's a little hard to see that there will be, but you should expect that there will be because you've seen quite a difference here between a baby and a graybeard. So there is discontinuity here. Why shouldn't there be a little bit more discontinuity? 
suppose you've been uh, going up and down hills and it's been getting a little rougher and rougher and then all of a sudden you get quite a rough spot. But you'll get over that too. So likely there is an immortality of the soul. There's a continuity of existence beyond this world. Where very probably, he said, probability is the guide of life. In other words, you mustn't expect to have any certainty in this life because you can't be certain because, don't you see, you have to use the empirical method. And Locke and Berkeley have taught us that, or Locke has taught us that, that we must open the shutters of our minds and let the facts come into them and write themselves on our minds. And uh, there isn't any absolute assurance that the facts will be in the future the way they have been in the past, but we have great probability because it's been that way now for so long, it's been this way for ages, and so we expect it to go on. Now, on that basis, you see, on a common interpretation with the non-believer, Bishop Butler starts off reasoning for the truth of Christianity. Now, this, as he says, is therefore the case. Nature reveals that there is a God. We'll call him the Father. He is the Creator. And now what I want to do is introduce you to the Son. That's Christianity, to Jesus. Now, you don't have to change your course of direction. You don't have to be converted in the traditional orthodox sense. You just simply go on further with the same principle. That is to say, you would expect it that as a father, as you can see, he's kind. You can see by the arrangement of nature, here are little animals, and they get eaten up by big animals. But then there is the blessed fact that little animals don't mind so much being eaten up by big animals. I mean, they're not very sensitive to, to pain, you see. Isn't, isn't nature a wonderful arrangement? Now, he hadn't heard of nature red in tooth and claw. I mean, the modern 19th, 20th century, he hadn't read existentialist literature about how rotten everything is and how basically ugly and measly. Here it was all, and then there were a series of books called the Bridgewater Treatises, which were written by a number of people who, like Butler and his great follower, Paley, oh, Paley, you know, found this watch on the shore, walking on the side. I mean, that's his illustration. And then he says, here's a watch. And uh, now, see, here's this watch. Now, I didn't know it was there. Oh, I see a watch man. There must have been a watchmaker. Isn't that, isn't that reasonable? Well, I, I, see, I see the human eye. And isn't it adapted to its environment marvelously? And isn't everything adapted to everything else in a wonderful way? And isn't it all glorious? and beautiful. It all is summed up by saying little animals don't mind being eaten by big animals. I don't know what happens to the big animals when they die. Well, the big point is that, to be sure, there is a lot of bad in the universe, but the good outweighs the bad. And it started to the effect, well, God did the best he could with the stuff he had to make things out of, you know. Like the wooden shoe maker making wooden shoes out of a clump of wood that's got knots in. Well, you expect bad things, or a, a sculptor that is making a piece of sculpture out of a block of marble that has cracks in it. You expect something less than perfection, aber in allgemein, and ein sehr guter world. Now, that is the way he said, now look, therefore, there is atonement in nature. Did you ever see a house burned down, or a farmyard burned down, and there a fuck hen has been sitting on its chicks? 
and the clock, the hand is burned away, and she was sitting there protecting her little children. That substitutionary atonement, that substitution. She was willing to give her life for her chest, don't you see? Now, therefore, you have atonement. You have the good prevailing over the evil, and atonement in nature. Later on, there was a book called Natural Law. Drummond was the author. That's quite a bit later. Natural Law in the Spiritual World. That is to say, the spiritual world is like the natural world. There are ordinary laws in it, and the good prevails over the evil, finally. And now, therefore, you should expect that the father who finds that his children, who, of course, are free to begin with, and that's underneath the philosophy of this absolute autonomy or human freedom, you should expect that if you put a, a group of little children in a room like this, and uh, they are children, they run around, they have freedom to run around, I mean, they have autonomous ability, and you say to them, now, you may do everything here, but don't touch that, that recorder set, and so forth. Well, that's about the first thing they'll go for. <laughs> I mean, of course it is. And they'll monkey with it till they've got it broken for you. Well, now, uh, that's what you've got to expect of little children, don't you? A good, wise father knows what to expect. And therefore, he is bound in his fatherly love to send some ways and means to correct them. Now, God the Father saw that his children had gone astray, quite badly, in fact. They made quite a mess of things. So he sends his son down. His son says, yes, I'll go down, and I'll straighten this business out. So then he comes down, and he sends them, tells them he loves them, and that they mustn't do this, and otherwise they get spanked, and a few things of that sort. So it's altogether reasonable, isn't it, that a son would come into the world. Well, now, he says, it, we know they've brought this upon themselves. But you don't, for that reason, throw out a child altogether. Suppose that somebody has brought a kettle of boiling water upon himself. You, after that, still help him, don't you, even though he did it himself. Well, now, and therefore you have to expect miracles. And the miracles in the scripture, oh yes, there are very strange miracles, very outstanding miracles. But we have already seen nature is built that way, that it can fit into nature. These miracles, the resurrection is the finest and the greatest of them, and that's a bigger and better miracle than the others. But it all fits naturally together, and it is built on this empirical philosophy of John Locke. Now, C.S. Lewis has a book the title of which is Miracles, and that's the same, same story. Sad to say, he hasn't outreached, he hasn't gone beyond this stage, he hasn't ever critical, critically examined this pagan empirical philosophy that underlies it and that controls it. Now, one thing that these should make Calvinist things is the fact, of course, that Butler was a lower type of Arminian, that he did have absolute freedom, and that sin wasn't uh, anything that was inherited, strictly speaking, we're not corrupt because we were represented in Adam and totally, we have no total depravity, and man has the power in himself to accept, to receive, and everything else that we think of as bad in theology. Well, that's to be expected that he would fit on with this sort of empirical philosophy for a methodology in apologetics. The amazing thing comes in that at Princeton Seminary, which was a thoroughly sound reform seminary, of course, when I was there, that they took up with this Butler stuff. This was the textbook when I was a student there. Butler's analogy was the textbook. It was refined, Dr. Uh, 
the, the teacher of apologetics who was there, he had refined it with all the alphabets he knew, and he knew a lot of them, details. It was all worked out like this by different people. Here we'll say we'll divide up the evidence for all kinds of things in ten for ten. All right, now then. Independent evidence. The more independent, it was all based on a court trial idea. Suppose somebody is charged with something. Well, then you have evidence for it, independent evidence. This man has seen that this person at the scene of the at the scene of the crime, and somebody else. Well, do they get it from the same source? No. Well, that the more independent they are, the better. Well, here's miracle, and here's prophecy, and now you have a whole lot of independent miracles. Here's a floating access, and there is something else, and here's something else, and a whole series of miracles. The more independent, the more of them, and the more independent they are together. And here's prophecy. Well, now, how could it happen that all those independent things would converge on one person? How probable is it? It would be utterly improbable. By the law of chances, it wouldn't happen. And yet it did happen. That proves that it is an absolutely supernatural controlled situation. Well, now, you see, there is involved in this a totally unchristian philosophy of reality. The Christian religion doesn't say that evidence is better the more independent it is. It says exactly the reverse. You are, you are dependent upon one another. It all hangs together. It's all one living body. You don't say, well, now, look, We'll take Mr. Smith over here, and we find a leg over of Mr. Smith down in southern Mississippi where he was preaching yesterday. And then we find his head over here, a hundred miles further, and another leg or an arm and things like that, all cut up over the state of Mississippi. Well, that would be a sort of a strange phenomenon, but that would be an unnatural thing. That would be an accidental thing. Now, the Christian religion is a religion, the aspects of which hang together, they're involved in one another. It's all one God, one creator, one redeemer, who controls the whole situation, and you take it in total unauthority, or you don't have it. Now, this is the method of empiricism that is still being used, it's being used, it has been always used by, used by Dr. Buswell, uh, uh, I guess he's retired now, Oliver J. Oliver Buswell, Jr., the third, is being used by Wilbur Smith and by a great many others. Wilbur Smith, that book, Therefore Stand, you know, he, says he deals with the creation and with the resurrection and with the return of Christ or judgment. And he says that, look, the unbeliever uh, should accept the fact of creation. You can get plenty of evidence for it. This world isn't self-sufficient, which is obviously true. Does that prove it's created? No, not for these people. It just means that it's chance produced. Now he says for the resurrection, we can get plenty of evidence. The witnesses were good witnesses. They have no reason to cheat and so forth. Of course that's true. But as far as these people that are not Christians and have a philosophy of reality that has contingency at its base, of course they'll take these these evidences and throw them over their shoulders, these resurrections, and say, give me some more, we're playing ball, 
give me those balls off of that table, I'll catch them and I'll throw them out. In other words, they don't care how many resurrections you prove. You, you don't prove the resurrection unless you, with it, also prove that resurrection as part of the totality picture of reality which God through Christ has revealed. The resurrection you are interested in is the resurrection of the Son of God, the Son of Man, through whom the world were made, by whom it consists, by whom it is redeemed, who in his human nature died, rose again. Now that's not the resurrection they are talking about. They are talking about some strange event. Have you ever heard of Believe It or Not written down here? Well, there, is a, there used to be a column in the newspapers, and they have a big auditorium somewhere. <laughs> in which they collect six-legged calves and uh, all kinds of things that nature has in the course of the millennia produced. Aristotle talked about monstrosities, and there are a lot of monstrosities. There was a truckload of them in Maine one time when I was there. We saw all kinds of, for a nickel or a dime, I suppose it was a nickel then. Today it would be a quarter. You could go through and see a whole lot of monstrosities. Now, I was in up in Canada there, campus in the woods, and I picked out a spot outside where the students sat on the ground, and I sat on the chair. They called it later on the Van Til Auditorium because <laughs> of all the odd things they got compared to what they had formerly believed. <laughs> now, the thing I'm trying to bring out is this, that the Christian point of view, creation, and the work that Christ did, you cannot prove that this way. You will disprove it. If you try to prove it, you will disprove it. Because worst of all is this, that you admit that proof can be intelligible in that way. Now, proof isn't intelligible. The idea of proof between relationship, between purely contingent facts, is inherently a meaningless something. How can you relate utterly discrete, disconnected, disparate facts to one another in any orderly fashion? That's chaos. That's the black night in which the night in which all cows are black and all cats are gray. Now, that's why you should have, as Christians, I would say, nothing to do with a philosophy like that. Here you're, 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 you're asking it to support your position or to be the foundation for your position. Well, then you're resting on sand. Well, now, I want to get on further than that. I just want to bring that in. But this is a synthesis, a Protestant synthesis. This is the equivalent of the Thomistic, the Roman Catholic synthesis. And it's the same synthesis. In other words, in the case of Romanism, you have a certain amount of what they call univocism, unity, by the laws of logic. And then a certain amount of equivocism, factuality. Reality, you remember Aristotle said, is analogical. Being is analogical. There's diversity in it, there's unity in it. Well, the unity is this univocal principle. The diversity is the equivocal. And that's what he calls analogy. Not too much. Made in argon, said Aristotle. Nothing too much as you have, I guess, here, as we have up north. These mixed concrete trucks, and they move along, you know, and they have concrete in there that's being stirred all the time. And you put water in, that's equivocism. You put, uh, you put gravel and sand in, that's univocism. Now, 
the big point is you've got to keep it stirring, don't you see? Otherwise, it's settled. Now, here you have Parmenidianism. That's the nervousism. You have Heraclitian flux. That's the equivocism. You mix absolute high solidity, reality which is what it must be by absolute laws of logic over which no man or God has any control, with pure mixture of chance. Now, what kind of a stuff is that? It's absolutely meaningless. Well, now, certainly it isn't Christianity. Well, now, what is it that we have here? We have continuity, and that's universalism. We have discontinuity, that's equivocism. So, this Butler analogy thing, and there is exactly the same thing, produces the same synthesis, the same mixture that you have in the Roman Catholic synthesis of Thomas Aquinas. And it's the same thing because underneath is the same view of man. In other words, in both cases, man is free, that is, autonomous. In both cases, the facts are what they are for no reason other than that they're just there by chance. That's the source of equivocism, of contingency, of disjointed, discreteness, discrete factuality, not discrete with two e's but discrete with one E, separate, disparate, unrelated, beads without holes in them, infinite in number. Now, that philosophy underlies Greek thinking, it underlies all modern thinking, and therefore it is an absolute mistake for Christians to combine their own position with either one or any one of those forms of a phosphate thinking. It doesn't matter particularly with which one you synthesize your thought. You're always the loser. You're always, they are always winning out. Now, there is a book recently by a friend of mine, Floyd E. Hamilton. Floyd E. Hamilton. Who has written The Rational Basis of Christian Faith. He wrote a the first edition of that a good many years ago, about 35 years ago. And then he was he was in Philadelphia for a while, and I talked to him quite a bit, and I thought I had him converted, but he didn't stay put. He reverted to type. And now he's put out a third edition. His second edition was changed for the better somewhat, but it's pretty hard to fix up. You can't very well fix up an old buggy that's rattly trapped and... Uh, <laughs> Can you make something solid out of it? Well, now he has reverted to type entirely, and he's back with Butler analogy, and he has a pious introduction which says that God has so bravely blessed his Butler analogy thing that it must be right. Well, uh, <laughs> now he's a good friend of mine. We're good friends. But the point is that you don't argue that way. God has blessed Arminian preaching too, hasn't he? That doesn't make Arminian preaching right. I mean, we're glad that he does, that people are converted in spite of the Arminianism, because as Warfield said, every Arminian that's basically a Christian is at heart a Calvinist. Anybody that's really on his knees praying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, can't be an Arminian anymore. He may theologically express himself in that way. Well, now, that's why I'm glad that there is much being accomplished, and I'm not interested in destroying or arguing against evidences and about the fact that the resurrection is evidence for the for the divinity of Christ. I'm only arguing that you mustn't cut your evidences, little pieces loose first and disrelate them and then 
bundled them up. Have you ever seen anybody shake all the apples off an apple tree and then take little strings and tie them all on again? Don't you see? Well, that's what this is doing. This is blockhouse theology. Well, it's fine to build blockhouses when you're a child and then build other blocks on top of that until the whole house falls down. Well, but the Christian religion is an organic religion. The facts in it are organically, livingly related to one another. As we saw yesterday, the concept of transcendence and the concept of imminence, they get their meaning from the system of which they're a part. They don't have meaning independently of the system, which you can artificially splice together. Well, now, having said that, we'll come back to this a little bit later. I want now to go on with Immanuel Kant. The reason, in other words, Kant saw perfectly well that here, this thing had ended up in skepticism. The concepts were faint replicas. Here were the percepts. Here were the concepts, faint replicas. There was no more coherence in the mind than in the things. The things are assumed to be unrelated. Well, the thoughts which are in your mind, if, they are, if the mind is a blank and is, has, does nothing, is negative or is passive, then of course the result is an unrelated conjury of brute factuality. So now then, what you have here, and Kant says that Hume arose, woke him from his dogmatic slumber. That is to say, you cannot with a rationalist say all reality is in and we can deduce one fact from another. You can't say that the ordering connection of things is identical with the ordering connection of ideas, the way Spinoza has said. Or you can't even say with lightness that in general you can logically predict reality the way it has to be. But therefore what we, we need to know is that facts are actually what Kant, what Hume says they are. Kant didn't deny Hume's philosophy of facts. He built it into his system. Norman Kent Smith, the great commentator on Kant's critique reason, says that the greatest contribution of Kant is in this very point, the pure contingency idea of factuality. Here you had the idea that factuality was what it was because some logical scheme made it to be what it was. Well now, if we as Christians, we say things are what they are because God the controller of all things makes them to be. But if there is no such controller, then what makes them to be what they are? Nothing at all makes them to be. Therefore, Kant says, let Mr. Hume, you are right. Facts are unrelated. In fact, facts don't have any character at all. Facts don't... What happened to my program? Facts don't have even any shape in them. They must be completely malleable. Now, he said to Leibniz, on the other hand, you are right too, except that you must not think of logic as a block, in, as a box into which facts can be thrown, which controls them. You must think of logic as a form only, pure form. And then it must, that form must be made correlative to the facts. And how is that made relative? 
And then he introduces what he calls his Copernican revolution. Instead of saying, as he says, the empiricists and the rationalists, both of them said, the mind and the facts must be made conformable to one another. Either the mind must be made like the facts and get objectivity that way. The mind must be passive and say, there are the facts. The objectivity lies in the fact that I've got them just as they are without my mind doing anything about them, affecting them in the least, molding them. Here the facts are what they are because a great rational mind, so to speak, has molded them, absolutely controlled them, but not actively. Here is the human mind, he says, which under, which you cannot prove as existing, but which you must presuppose as being there somehow, underneath, free, organizing. And then it takes these facts, the mind, as it were, works like this. Here are the facts, different shapes, the facts in themselves, in themselves, that's being antique. But the mind comes, and it comes through like this, with form, causality, substance, relation. Well, by time it gets to handle these facts, these facts are all squared off. Now, this is the point, therefore, that the mind makes the facts as it receives them. That is, the particular facts that the mind finally has, the scientific facts, are made as much as they are given, are formed, are molded, pure, raw stuff. You see what's happening to these individual facts. They are no longer having their individuality because they have characteristics in themselves prior to the mind's relation to them. They have no characteristics. Here's pure, raw stuff. Now, those of you that are married know how your wife bakes cookies once in a while when you've been good. And, uh, and here's a batch of dough flat on the table, and she makes this. You've been very good. She makes elephant cookies for you. <laughs> or, uh, whatever cooking you, shape you prefer. Why does she, how can she do that? Because the dough is ready to receive any shape or form that she puts on. She's got a molder. She's got a, a form, a cookie form. Don't you see? She can make any kind of cookies. Make, there's no restriction to cookie down. Uh, if only the stuff is really malleable. And that's why she takes a flour sifter and she sifts out the last remnants of of bulkiness or hardness, if there are little tiny pieces of rock or nut shell in there like that, they all got to come out. The flower's got to be just absolutely perfectly malleable. Now, this is the point that you must see with respect to Kant, that he starts with a stuff as rawer than raw, even than Hume the skeptic. In other words, Kant is more skeptical than was Hume, not less skeptical, but more skeptical if it came to the question of knowing the facts in themselves. You therefore know no facts in themselves. Let me take another illustration. Again, from your wife's experience, which I hope you watch. Now, here's, this, here's your refrigerator, and here's this tray, and you put water in there. And then you, I should have put that water in there first. Here's water everywhere in the tray. And then you put this divider in, don't you see? And mirabile addictive, what comes out? 
Huh? Ice cubes. And how do these ice cubes differ in shape from one another? They don't. That's the point, providing this thing is perfect, of course. Now, therefore, and that's why over there I get iced tea every morning and I get glass full of these beautiful scientific facts <laughs> called ice cubes. Now, those are, they are the facts that Kant says are our facts. The only facts that we ever see are like these ice cubes which we, having the raw stuff come to our mind, have molded, mashed, uh, formed. Therefore, the mind has contributed the forming activity, the categories, as he calls them, that is, the laws of logic and of order, and particularly, most important of all, cause, are in the mind. There is no causal relation between this fact and that fact and that fact at all. They are, they're in the water, they're in the bottom of the ocean. If they have any such shape as that, we never meet them. You never meet the fact like that for the simple reason that when you meet them, you change them. Don't you see? They're into the, change them into this form that you want them to be. Well now, therefore, what is now then the field of science? And how does Kant think he saves science? You remember, here you have skepticism, all individual facts. Here you have skepticism, one hard block of logic. Not this kind. We can save the situation and save human knowledge and save science if only we combine Hume and Leibniz. If we reject the bad elements in Hume and the bad elements in Leibniz, combine the good elements, uh, both, the good element here being the idea of pure factuality and the good element here being that there is no form in the thing that the form has to be imposed on the stuff but then get away from that notion that there is an abstract immobile eternal form but say that the form is within the moving organizing mind now that means you are actualizing the human mind that is to say the mind is anything but what Hume says it is, or what the empiricist says it is. It is not the passive receiver of facts. It is the active molder, former of the raw stuff. And then the facts are what you make them to be. Then you take your ice cubes out of the refrigerator, and they all have the same shape. If I may use another gruesome, or not another gruesome, but a gruesome illustration. Suppose that I have built into this wall a sausage grinder. Now, in the old days on the farm in Indiana, the winter time came, and we kill a young steer or a cow, a young bullock, and also a pig or two. And then we would uh, grind them all up, except for the hams, of course, and uh, those good parts, the rest of the meat was ground up. Now, then we would have a sausage grinder, and I happened to grind that sausage grinder before the days of electricity, as you see. And then, mirable addictive, wasn't it very strange? The sausages all had the same shape, and they had the same stuff in them. There was a raw stuff on the other side. Now, suppose you had never seen cows or pigs, and you were in a, in a sausage grinder there, and back of that were all kinds of things maybe a doggy or two when you want hot dogs 
and uh, at least you want to, want them flavored that way. Then you get here this great cosmic sausage grinder, which is the mind. Now, if you have that sausage grinder and it's empty, there's no stuff in it, no pigs and cows in it, no meat, none to feed it. Then you can put an electric motor in and start it. Goes that sausage grinder. It produces no science, no facts, no sausage. You can have all the meat you want by itself, no sausage grinder, and no activity, no sausage. But when you got stuff, and that stuff is put in the sausage grinder, and then there is power to move that sausage grinder. Sausages, sausages, more sausages. Long, short, just the way you want them. Now, that is the view of modern science, as Kant has revolutionized the whole approach. The human autonomous mind, that mind which at the beginning of history in the person of Adam says, no, I don't want to accept the facts the way you have interpreted them. And I don't want you to tell me what the facts are. That, that kind of fact is a death thing on See, How could I know anything about a fact like that? I have to have facts that I have experience of and that I can experience and that I can experience over again and that I can remake again. And I want myself to be the source of the organizing, the forming, the molding of, these, of this raw stuff. Now you see that this is essentially the same thing that we saw was true with respect to Socrates when he said, uh, please tell me what the thing is in itself, apart from what God and man, except that we've gotten way beyond Socrates now. Socrates still has holiness up there, don't you see? And he thought he had to look up to that. Kant hasn't got holiness up there anymore. He's got holiness inside. He makes his own holiness as he goes. It's a synthetic holiness. It's a holiness which the autonomous moral consciousness of man makes as it goes. Now, you remember Kant's great work, Critique of Theoretical Reason. That is the work in turn, which is the epoch-making work in which we are told that we must take Hume and Leibniz, the principle of formality, formal rationality, and raw stuffality, and bring them together by the acting, by the acting mind. Now he departs, he divides this critique of pure reason into three parts. The first part is what he calls the, um, the intuitions of sense. That is, in German, unshown. Here are stuff, the raw stuff of experience. It comes to us in the form of space and of time. Now you remember that Parmenides said that space and time can have no reality. If we are at all logically engaged on it, then we have to have a reality that is non-spatial, non-temple, that is eternal, changeless, one block. Now we're going to have a real spatial, temporal world. Now, here then is the raw stuff of experience. It comes to us when the mind deals with that raw stuff. It doesn't deal with it the way Parmenides dealt with it, at once reduce it to nothingness. It wants to allow the uniqueness of that raw stuff, and it therefore says, as it were, it's like a doctor's office. Here's the nurse, and here comes 
the office door is open and people walk in. Some have red faces, others have pale faces. And the nurse provisionally puts all the pale faces on one side. They've got anemia, the red faces, they get high blood pressure. But that's only a nurse. That's a provisional, non-final evaluation. It is already a sort of classification that is, when you're in the building, you begin to be classified. But the real classification, come in, next please, come in, Dr. CVT. Now, he's got kind of a red face. But that doesn't necessarily, see the nurse that put me on the high blood pressure people because I have a red face. But the doctor says, no, you don't have high blood pressure. There are other reasons for your color and so forth. So he examined me and he has the begrip. He has not, he has the concept. And by concept, you finally classify. Now, according, and concepts are cause and substance and modality. And you classify things by means of these concepts which you impose on the percept. Now here, you remember, in, in Hume you had percepts quite clear, and then you had concepts, faint replicas of those percepts. And therefore the concepts were not related to one another, and they were not organically related. Now Kant presupposes an internal organizing relationship between a system of concepts, which system of concepts is like this sausage grinder that all stuff that comes into it must shake, take the shape of those concepts. All experience must be causal. It all must have a certain identity, a substantive characteristic. It all must have a sort of purpose. That's human life. Human life takes the raw stuff of experience, speaks of it as thus related to the other thing, causally related, and used for this purpose. And it has this sort of substance, it has sort of a being. Now, then he says, however, when you come to the question of purpose, then you're still within this world. And all of this is within what he calls the phenomenal realm. That is to say, this is not to deal with things in themselves. We have given that up. All of these people were still dealing, as they thought they were, with things in themselves. And the rationalist has reality in itself, as you see. Now, he says, we must no longer think that man can know anything about anything whatsoever that is beyond our moment-by-moment -moment experience of our own organizing, our own sausage-making activity. And now apply that to the question of Christianity and of theism. What does it mean? Well, he says, we have had difficulty before to relate causality to freedom. If you put man in here and say he's part of this causal world, then he loses his freedom. We have to therefore postulate, not that we can prove that we are free, we have to postulate, just assert our moral consciousness, I ought, and therefore it says also you can. Well, here, if you were nothing but what you are, according to the psychology, that had been developed by the empiricists or the psychology developed by the rationalists, then man would have no freedom. And therefore, it says also, you can. Well, here, if you were nothing but what you are, 
according to the psychology that had been developed by the empiricists or the psychology developed by the rationalists, then man would have no freedom and he wouldn't be an individual and morality would fall to pieces. And there would be no science because, you see, there would be nothing but unrelated facts or abstract identical principles. But now we've got a growing concern inside here, but we have to recognize our limitations. It is a going concern like a rowboat on the Pacific Ocean. It's going in that it's floating on a, on a pure contingency basis. But it's kept dry within because you pump the water out if there's a leak, or you don't need to if you've sealed the boat to begin with. So science now becomes a successful floating concern. It's now a rowboat, or if you will, a big boat. Nevertheless, it is it, is, it has back of it the real world of which you can't get knowledge in the sense that you can get knowledge when you're on the boat and on the deck you can play ping pong on the deck but you can't very well play, play ping pong with drops of water in the water in the ocean when you're made of water now don't you see we have saved science this kind we saved it sure we have we now can predict that the sun will come up in the, in the east tomorrow morning. We can predict that. We have saved science. Not because we have discovered what the empiricists or the rationalists were ever, what the thing, the sun, or any other fact is in itself, and that we can know that we know nothing about. They were after the rainbow. They tried to reach into that which is utterly beyond them. You can't relate human freedom to the world of causality in any intellectually, causally significant way. And therefore, you cannot predict that the sun will come up in the east. Everything is held, but now we can, because the sun is what it is within our world. We made it that way. The causation springs from us. The sun's got to come, got to come, has to come up in the east, what we call the east. Because what we call East and West and so forth, all universals, spring from the organizing activity of the human self. That's not an individual self. That's not George or any other individual or Johnny. But it is the general consciousness of mankind. Das allgemeine menschliche Bewusstsein. That's what it is. He presupposes a general human consciousness. He doesn't want a God but he wants the general human conscience. Now, let's look at this. Phenomena, noumenal distinction. Here's the free self, and here's the causal self. There are now two selves, the empirical self and the noumenal, or the absolute conscious self. Here are the things, the objects of science, and here is the thing in itself. Here is the empirical self, but here is the big self back of the empirical self. Two selves, two objects. We need that in order to explain science. Now, negatively, that means that when we come to the third part of the critique, which deals with the begriffe, not begriffe, with ideas, ideas or ideals, that means with the relation of this total world to what is beyond it in the way of God, the first cause. 
Now, what we see here, you see, we see this fact is, this is the cause of that fact, and this is the cause of that, there's a cause back of that, and a cause back of that. But we can jump out of this world into a wholly other world. Now, just, if you will, remember that chicken with a duck egg. This is terra firma, as far as science is concerned, and this is our territory. And we are restricted to it because we have made it. In the nature of the case, we can't get out beyond ourselves, beyond our activity of our own minds, and our own minds have molded the raw stuff of experience. We, this is synthetic projects. We have made solidity for ourselves as we go. Now, but that means that we must be satisfied to stay within this. Don't jump out of the rowboat into the Pacific Ocean or don't jump off the Queen, I keep wanting to say Queen Mary, even when she's already passed. All right? Don't jump off the big steamer, I have to generalize, in order to get to an absolute back of that. All right, now here's the ontological argument. He says, look, here was, here was Spinoza, and here was Leibniz, and here was Descartes. They had the ontological argument. Here were the empiricists. They had the cosmological and they had the teleological argument. And here were these Christian theologians who used empiricist philosophy in order to build up a cosmological argument. That's being done right now by my friend Floyd e. Hamilton. He says, look, you can first experience, in daily experience, you see there must be a self back of the things that we daily have. We're not materialists, therefore we have a self. And then we start from self and build a bridge of cause. This is his expression. A bridge of cause to the outside world. And then we build a bridge again from this outside world to God. Well, I wish Floyd Hamilton would at least have taken time to read Kant's critique of pure reason or at least some criticism of the Christian position based on it. So with Wilbur Smith. So with all my good fundamentalist friends. They just ignore all of this, apparently. Well... You can't ignore that. You must take the worst criticism of Christianity there is and deal with it, because we don't have to be afraid of the worst of criticism, because all that this position can do is reduce itself to absolute futility. Now, here then is the point. You cannot prove that there is a first cause of the universe. In the nature of the case, you can only get up to the edge. You can build out this thing, and then, do you have a first cause? You only make yourself believe that you have a cause. If you logically extend the concept beyond the percept, beyond your experience, it's an interaction of percepts and concepts. If you try to go by means of the concepts, then you go like that, up in the sky. One of the, uh, Rufus Jones talked about shingling into the void, into the mist. Now, it's fine, you build some rafters like that, but don't you see, you're up there shingling and you're going higher, and that's fog up there. Now, there goes George in the fog, shingles, putting shingles on what? On nothing. And where's George? Flop. George is gone. Well, that is as, kind of as useless and as hopeless and as foolish as the historic Christian position is. And as the theistic proofs are, the theistic proofs come in for their criticism in this last part of the 
critique of pure reason, he takes them up, all three, and he says the cosmological and the, and the teleological, they are all based finally on the ontological, because it's all a question of, of the nature of existence and the nature of being. Is there an absolute being? If there is, then of course he has an absolute purpose, and then he is the absolute cause. You can't talk about an absolute cause with, or an absolute purpose without having an absolute being. But you cannot get to an absolute being. Don't you see? The moment you go there, well, then you are jumping off the boat. Or that's an anabasis, a allogenos, as he calls it. A jump into an other category. It's like a bird that feels cramped in the air and that wants to swim underwater. Or a fish that is cramped in the Pacific and that wants to get on shore for a breather. And what happens? Gone is a fish, even if it's a whale. Now, the point is, therefore, that science is saved because it is thus restricted. We now have saved science by limiting it. And then we have saved religion. Now, I think we better take that up this coming hour. We have saved science and made room for religion. You've heard that famous expression, have you not? We have saved science, made room for religion. Randy? I think, I don't quite understand where he got his categories that he made the human mind, the general mind, where did he get his phrase that he played all Oh, well, yeah, that's a good question. That is, well, he says that we all have to think in terms of what, what always has been called causality, that one thing necessarily follows another in the physical world. Science requires that. Here he says, in the fact of science, nobody not denies that there is a body of knowledge and that new facts are added to it. Now that is to be explained, how there can be a permanent body of knowledge. In other words, it mustn't all be held or shelter. Then you wouldn't have science. Then you wouldn't even get started. But on the other hand, neither must science be an eternally fixed reality to which nothing new can be added. Because science precisely means, the means certainly also the discovery of new additional information that we add. Now, this fact of science, which means a system which is growing, that's what you have to explain. Now, that, he says, the empiricists couldn't explain because they had no mind that did any organizing, and they had only facts unrelated. And see, the rationalists couldn't explain it. They had only one eternal changeless block of abstract mentality to which nothing new could be added. Now, he's explaining science, how this can be a growing thing. But to be a growing thing, it must grow from within. And it's the spider within that weaves its web. Don't you see? It catches the flies in this, its web. And it is this act characteristic out of which all modern theology springs, incidentally. I mean, it is this synthesizing organizing. Now that is the, the act of desperation, I would say, by which they're trying to save things. And the, the human mind, the general human mind that catches all the facts and organizes, you just have to presuppose that that's there? Yeah, the that is right. You have to presuppose. We are here, see? We are here as facts. Now then he says, how do we explain ourselves? Well, we have to explain ourselves by the presupposition of a general human consciousness, which is thus actively engaged in taking the raw stuff of experience and organizing it for practical purposes. We don't any longer know anything theoretically, conceptually, about 
uh, things about origin or purpose or ultimate being. You see, that cuts out all historic Christianity. But it cuts it out worse than it looks because it isn't only that we can't get beyond this world, but even this world is not, you see, he's taken this away from us too because you couldn't have the resurrection of Christ in this world, don't you see? It's here every fact is what it is related to this organizing activity of this mind and therefore a miracle cannot happen here in the Christian sense of the term because all that the mind can know is ordered by itself into a system and a, and a resurrection would have to fit into that system and then of course from our point of view it isn't the resurrection of Christ anymore. Well, is there a possibility in categorizing the facts, uh, say that blackboard, blackboard, is there a possibility of another person categorizing this in a different way? Is this way the suggestion comes in, like, uh, say, Bill would say, well, that's yeah. not a blackboard, and I say, well, that is a Yeah, but to avoid that, he's got his general human consciousness. He, he says, he admits that, but that's an assumption that your mind and John's mind and Randy's mind are all aspects of one general mind. Therefore, he, he says his position is not as aspectipi of every individual. It, is, it isn't solipsism, he says. We're not back to skepticism. He's trying to answer skepticism. He's trying to answer the individualism of Berkeley and the skepticism of Hume at one stroke by his general human consciousness, which does this organizing. Well, we'll stop in for He saved science and made room for religion. That's the myth. That's the cunt myth, and we have to demythologize that. Well, uh, in the first place, he did not save science. How can you save science this way? What is science? It's, it's an island floating, an island which has contingency around it, which has contingency built into it. It isn't, as I use the illustration of a rowboat or of a, low, a boat which is watertight, but this is not watertight. This is leaky all the way through, don't you see? It is the idea of pure contingency built into an as one aspect of science. And that has to account for the newness. Now notice what, as Christians, we have is that we say there are new things in this world. Man does things. Sin was a new thing. But it was also still within the plan of God. Nothing new in the absolute, underrivative sense happens, can happen. But on this basis, on any non-Christian basis, everything that happens is basically new in the sense of contingent chance produced. Now that notion underlies even this body of science, which is supposedly so, determ so deterministic and so completely controlled by causality. Well, you see, the causality that controls it springs from this general consciousness of man, which is itself a product of chance. Like, to use that illustration of a white cap on an ocean, here's the stirring of the water, the waves stir up the water and then on the top of the waves there are, you say, a lot of white caps this morning. Well, that's here's Johnson and here's Randy. He's a white cap and then all of a sudden he disappears into the blue again. Now, if all that science is 
is the ordering by white cats of blue stuff, well, that's all science is. That is not saving science. A number of years ago, I taught for one semester at Calvin Seminary, and I was saying these things, and one of the boys raised his hand. He says, last year we were told that can't save science. Now you tell us this. Well, I said, can't save science? Christ saved science. Christianity saved science. If it weren't for Christianity, there would be no ordered cosmos. There would be no creation. There would be no providence. There would be no causal relationships. That is, there would be no permanence. There would be no sun rising in the east tomorrow by the ordinance of God. Here, all of those things do still have to happen, you see, basically by chance. Now, therefore, we should not say, look, isn't it wonderful what Kant did? He saved science. And now we can have, uh, uh, and now he's limited science. He saved science by limiting it. And that is so wonderful because now, you see, good fences make good neighbors. And so here's the non-Christian scientist, and here am I, the fundamentalist, and we get along top because I keep my religion to myself and he keeps his science to himself. And uh, this is a high fence. And Never the twain shall meet. Consequently, that is how there is, as one Dutchman put it, Fister by name, that Utrecht is the eve of phrase, that the eternal peace between science and religion. Yes, there is an eternal peace between that kind of science and this kind of religion, which he made room for. To be sure, what kind of religion did he make room for? And then people say, isn't it glory, hallelujah, praise the Lord. He made room for religion. Now we can all have religion. Now, your religion may differ a little from mine, but at least we're all religious people. And it's certainly best to have religious people in the community, isn't it? Better than people that have no religion. So we're glad that he made room for religion. Ah, but there's just one little hit. He did not make room for the Christian religion. Not only didn't he make room for the Christian religion, he excluded the possibility of the Christian religion. In other words, if you accepted this scheme of things, then you can accept a religion. And this is precisely what has been done now all through the 19th and 20th centuries, a religion that is in accord with the three critiques of Kant, of pure reason, of practical reason, and of judgment, and then in accord with his own book on religion within the limits of pure reason. So this is an awfully good book to read because then you can see what Kant's own religion was as he thought religion that was consistent with the principles of science which he had worked out in his critiques. Now, he says, we have theoretical reason. That is conceptual reasoning. That's what he means by theoretical. Now, that is limited to this world. Then there is the practical reason. We can talk as if, as if. There was a gentleman in the 19th century uh, who wrote a great big book, The Philosophy of As If, in Philosophie des Alts In other words, all 19th century philosophy and all modern 19th century theology is theology of as if. You don't know anything. This realm is beyond the possibility of conceptual knowledge and the conceptual knowledge such as the autonomous man makes by imposing his categories upon Rostock, that is conceptual, theoretical knowledge, and that, he says, in the nature of the case, cannot be had 
of things back there, of things this way, that way, things forward at all. Now, what we do then, we practical purposes, we are free. We don't know that we are free. We don't know ourselves at all. We have no knowledge of ourselves in the sense that we have no conceptual knowledge of ourselves. We can't form a concept of ourselves. If we did, we wouldn't be ourselves anymore. Don't you see? Sprich die Seele, so sprich auch schön die Seele nicht mehr. If the individual speaks, as he must speak, through concepts, through begriffe, well, then the individual is reduced to the horizontal. In Aristotle's philosophy, you have individuals like this. And when they're like that, perpendicular, they're not related. They don't have any uh, connection like Amos and Andy. Then when they get related, they get conceptually related. And then they get more related. And they get awfully well related. And they get derelated. They get absolutely destroyed by their relatedness. And then they have no more individual identity. Now that is the inherent situation in all forms of apostate thinking. If the individual is to be an individual, he must be on his own philosophy, an individual that is absolutely independent of the plan of God. Don't you see? That's the satanic aspect of it. That is not as many good Christian people, evangelical Christian people, still seem to think that's an innocent thing, that's just philosophy, and that isn't enough. We need Christianity in addition or maybe it's even not quite right, or a little bit bad. But we ought to see this as a result of the fall of man. That is, there is no metaphysics, no theory of metaphysics, or epistemology that is an innocent thing. It's either the product of a God, of a truth-repressing apostate consciousness, or it is the product of a consciousness that has been saved by grace and redeemed by the blood of Christ, that is once more trying to think God's thoughts after him. Well, now, you look at this book, Religion Within the Limits of Pure Reason Alone. Well, you remember that we talked about Dionysus, the Areopagite, and Scotus Origina, when they brought the Plotinian, when they crucified the Christian story of the Bible in terms of Plotinian, form, matter, categories. Now, here you have the crucifixion of the Christian religion, the same story, according to a nature grace category. This is nature, this realm of the phenomenal. That's grace, that's the realm of freedom, that's the place of religion. There's where I meet you. This is the place of person-to-person -person confrontation. And you can see at once, I mean, once you see this basic point, all modern contemporary philosophy and theology lights up for you. I don't mean to say nothing lights up you, for you in an ultimate sense. But I mean, you can then know where you're going because then you see that you have this I-it dimension. That's the field of science. That's the field of things. And when some preacher talks piously of not reducing persons to things, then in all likelihood he's been drinking of this poison and he didn't know it himself. That you see the eyes out and person-to-person -person confrontation and these horribly orthodox people they've never heard of Kant and they've never been through the critique of pure reason and practical reason and so then they still talk about a God who has caused this world to come into existence they still have to speak of the relation of God to man in causal terminology 
and they don't realize that this is the I-thou dimension and has nothing to do with the causal relationship. This is the way Barkhus is the realm of Geschichte. This is the realm of history. Now, God is up here too, you know. He's a bigger one. He's a bigger circle. Here's the I-thou, and here's the I-thou. Now, however, again, it's the same story. Man is the same stuff as deity. He's just as original as God. He's just as much, he's just as self-contained as God. Is, God, too, is surrounded by chance. As man, we're all out of luck. God, too. But here is the realm of person-to-person -person confrontation. And then you can belong to a Presbyterian church, and then you get this modern scheme, the way Dr. Mackay, formerly president of Princeton, and the present president of Princeton, and Dr. Hendry of the theology department of Princeton, now use this scheme in order to make the Reformed faith, they synthesize the Reformed faith with this I-thou thou scheme of Kant. Now, religion is possible. The religion of the Confession of 1967 comes out of this or has come out of this. Because, don't you see, science can say what it wants. Here's evolution. We don't care what evolution, what science says about man's origin. We are not interested in this space-time dimension. A true dimensional philosophy doesn't, look here, isn't satisfied with reducing things to this lower dimension. These reformed theologians in the Netherlands those beati possidentes, as Bart called them, virtually, the blessed possessors, those that think because they have some reformed confession, and the Presbyterians in America are just as bad. They got the Westminster Confession. In the Netherlands, they have the Belgian Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the five articles of Dort. And they think, we've got it. And then they, here's a man, Kaelkagen, and they throw him out of the church because these poor people think they have it. They possess God. They control him. They can predict what he's going to do. They've got a theory of predestination, and that by that theory, some must be thrown out into everlasting perdition for no reason at all. Ah, now all of that thing is done for. We can now be Presbyterians. We can now be Reformed. And we can be also conscious. And we now have the solution between freedom and necessity we have now no more problems at all. Logic doesn't bother us anymore. We now can all have the same. And this, of course, is the basis of all church unions. You see, the Lutherans, I told you about these Lutheran Reformed conversations that I attended for two years. The modernized, conscientized Lutherans and the conscientized Presbyterians, Reformed, they agreed on this. They agreed religion should be worshiping some sort of something somewhere and should not be the old traditional sense. Here were the Orthodox Lutherans and the Orthodox Calvinists and they argued about the Oxford Confession and the Heidelberg Confession and which was more true to the Bible and as a system of doctrine containing a system of pronounced with all of it. We are now done with that. We are free. Now, that he expresses, you see, in this religion within the limits of pure reason alone. The whole Christian story is allegorized. Adam was not, of course, a historical individual. But the story is there to the effect that Adam and all of us, who are all of us also Adam, we are absolutely free. And the first act of evil comes from within, from within us. 
Now, we are good, to be sure, basically, but still we have some radical abuser, some radical evil in us. And consequently, somehow, un, un, inexplicably, there oozes out of us some very bad things. And so, uh, we must have, and we must say, well, now look here, then we better have a Christ, don't you think? We better have a Christ, and we better make him come down from heaven. Now, here's the Christian story. It tells us just exactly that sort of thing. It has the story of the incarnation. Now, we know very well there are no such things as incarnation. They cannot happen. That world, if it came into this world, if any information, suppose you talked about some information about who God is, and the Chalcedon Creed says, the two natures are united, asingutos and theptos, adioretos and aphoristos. Well, then that means, oh, that's attempting to say something about that divine, ineffable God of whom nothing can be said. And when he comes in here, then, of course, we make those kind of concepts. However, we know perfectly well that that's all allegory, that that's all symbolism, that there is no reality as far as we know, but we better have an incarnation. And so Kant has the Son of God come down into history, sure enough. But it isn't, of course, the historically conceived Son of God, the Chalcedon Creed. Now, Barthes, you know, has actualized the Chalcedon Creed in precisely in accordance with the demands of Kant's critique of pure reason. Now, I'd like to call your attention to Richard Croner's book. Richard Croner is an outstanding modern philosopher-theologian. He was, first of all, a great philosopher of Hegel, and then he came to this country and taught at Union Seminary for a number of years, and he wrote quite a few books in English. Still, he's a very brilliant, able man, and he's written a three-volume work, very readable, very helpful, on speculation and revelation, uh, and a little bit more, I don't know, the rest of the title. Now, in the first volume, he deals with Greek speculation as background for the Christian revelation. In the second volume, he deals with medieval theories, and in the third volume, with Kant and subsequent to Kant. Now, over against that, I'd like to call your attention to Doyaware's, Herman Doyaware's scheme in his four-volume work, Critique of Theoretical Thought, when he speaks of four basic ground motifs. First of all, he says, He's, of course, writing from an orthodox Christian point of view. The form-matter scheme of the Greeks. Now, we've seen, by and large, what that is. Aristotle's forms, or ideas, and Plato, I mean, Plato's forms and ideas. Aristotle's thought thinking itself, and here a cosmos of brute factuality, and they are correlatively related to one another. That other God is not the creator of this world, but he's correlatively related, like the convex and the concave side of the same disk. Now, that form-matter scheme is, of course, the basis for the nature-grace scheme of Roman Catholicism. Nature, according to Romanism, is built by the principles of the form-matter scheme of the Greeks. Philosophy, what was philosophy then, can tell us what this world is. We don't have to have a Christian philosophy. We can get that from Aristotle. But then we add on top of it grace. So we have the grace nature or nature grace scheme. And then you have, of course, the Christian scheme, the creation, fall, and redemption. But you have this modern conscience scheme, nature, freedom. Here is nature, 
the phenomenal world and there is freedom. Now, this is fine in itself, only I think we can simplify it. Anything you can do to simplify, I think, is always worthy of doing, except that you must simplify so far that you have no content left. But you can simplify by saying, here's the Christian position, here's the non-Christian position, and in it you have the ancient form-matter scheme, the modern and the modern uh, nature freedom scheme. They are only two expressions of the same thing. In both cases, you see, it's the individual, autonomous man, who takes the individual facts and relates them. Now, it's in ancient times, the form-matter scheme, you had the form supposedly existing outside, up there, way eternal. In modern times, with Kant, you have the forming activity in man. There is no longer any knowledge of the world of forms, of eternal principles. Kant has done with that. He says, we know only what is within our own selves and what we can conceptually organize. Now that, therefore, is the matter, I mean, is the nature, grace scheme of the Roman Catholics, which is a cross between these two. So if you take the basic Christian scheme, which is creation, fall, redemption through Christ, and the non-Christian scheme, which is the scheme of autonomous man plus brute factuality, organized by himself, either in the way the Greeks did it, by, by means of a supposed form up there, or by means of this internal organizing form within the self. You see how much more obviously man-centered modern philosophy is than ancient philosophy. And that's why some Christian people, my friend Dr. Gellum at Calvin College, always used to think Greek philosophy was so much better than English. So does Dr. Clark, because then he said you had objectivism. Now you have subjectivism. I would say you have subjectivism all the time since the time of the flood, no, before the flood, when Adam listened to the devil. Then when man-centered thinking came into the world. And that's what is for us, finally, the subjective point of view, no matter how objective it is, from their point of view in another way. Now, then we have now the beginning of something of a vision of what modern thinking is like, beginning with Kant, answering Hume and, and Leibniz, and limiting knowledge to this world and religion to the other world. Limiting knowledge and therefore saving science, making room for religion, man-centered religion. Now here the natural man's got absolute free play. The world's now open for him. He doesn't have to any longer be afraid of accepting anything and everything that scientists say. As a scientist, he can be Freudian psychologist, he can be existentialist, he can be anything he sees. And a preacher can be anything he pleases on this score. Karl Barth says that he doesn't mind soft philosophy so much. That's not bad, not that he's interested in it. But he doesn't mention Doe Ware, but to all intents and purposes, he doesn't want a sort of philosophy like Doeyward has, because you see, a, Christ, a philosophy such as Doeyward has would would cramp his style, would would mean that he's supposed to be once more committed to a system of truth as it is once for all given in history and revealed to us through Christ. Now, any this is 
fantastic to think that I've brought this all in in so general a fashion. But I'd like to at least temporarily go on unless you want, I'm willing to ask, entertain questions. But otherwise, for the moment, I'll go on beyond time. Yes. Okay. <laughs>